You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, one of the hosts of this podcast. This week, we're going to be returning to our conversation with Jim Baker, the former general counsel of the FBI and currently at the R Street Institute. If you go back two weeks, you can listen to the first part of our conversation with Mr. Baker about warrantless wiretapping programs and his career in public service. Before we get into the episode, the Standing Committee on Law and National Security is hosting a breakfast event on March 13th with John Sopko, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, on the threats to rule of law that corruption poses in Afghanistan. That's March 13th in Washington, D.C., and you can find information to sign up for that on our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. But now let's get on to the episode. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting is anybody who finds themselves in the middle of these massive public events, I think it's important to remember, and we have lately remembered, there are things called career professionals. So let's just go back over this really quick. Um, how many presidents and attorneys general did you serve? And Good. who were they? Goodness. Okay, so presidents, um, George H.W. Bush, President Clinton, uh, Pre- President uh, George W. Bush, um, then President Obama, and President Trump, and then AGs. So I think I, when I started, I think uh, Dick Thornburg was the Attorney General, and then I guess it was Bill Barr <laughs> after that, and then uh, who came next? Uh, Janet Reno, I think. I worked with Janet Reno very closely for a long period of time. Then John Ashcroft, uh, Alberto Gonzalez. Who came next after that? I think I left, and then uh, President Obama came in, so then it was Eric Holder, and then... Again, I left for a bit, and then I came in. It was Loretta Lynch, and then uh, Attorney General Sessions at the end. So I think that's it. Well, they, every time yeah, you step away, yeah. they pull you back in. <laughs> <laughs> um, so can you tell us, I think um, uh, it's it's really interesting that, uh, at least in our circles, those people are, are pretty much household names. But I, we want to ask you about uh, Jim Comey, because... Mm-hmm. His name has come up a lot uh, recently, as everyone uh, remembers. How did you come to work for him? Uh, I was the head of uh, OIPR at the time, and so as such, I was a component head, which meant that I reported directly to the deputy attorney general, as did, as do, I guess, any assistant attorney general, director of the FBI, director of Bureau of Prisons, and so on. Even though my office was a small 100-person office compared to 38,000 at the FBI, it's on the org chart, we were at the same level in the sense of reporting directly to the Deputy Attorney General. And so Jim Comey came in as the Deputy Attorney General, and so he was my boss. So I got to know him that way and uh, you know, worked very closely with him on a number of different, different issues, including then dealing with Stellar Wind, as we were talking about before. So, uh, yeah, so that's how I got to know him. And how, what did you... What did you think about the decision that he made to um, talk about the um, the investigation into uh, presidential candidate Hillary Clinton um, without talking about the investigation into candidate Trump? So the investigation of Hillary Clinton, as I recall, was already made public by the time the FBI got it. And so people knew that we were conducting it. They knew it was going on. And that's why I think he and we all felt an obligation when we concluded it to say something about what we had concluded. 
the investigation uh, that we that you referred to in the opening, Crossfire Hurricane, uh, with respect to Russia and its efforts to interfere with the U.S. presidential campaign in 2016, and to the extent that it was focused on people who were or had been connected to the Trump campaign, um, that was just getting underway. And we really did not understand the nature and scope of the threat that we were dealing with or who exactly was involved or who we could talk to about it. And so we were very cautious about it at the outset. And so not wanting to reveal what it was that we knew or didn't know, we thought that it was something that should be held very close hold, that only a few people within the FBI should know about it, and that we should be very careful about what we did with respect to overt investigative steps so as not to interfere in any way with the with the election. It's it's kind of, you know, that's a very sober way of putting it because I don't think that messaging ever really penetrated um, into the media coverage, right? It, it was almost immediately politicized. And how do you, so how do you feel about, like, the way that the FBI, which, you know, has ebbed and flowed in history, right? The J. Edgar Hoover days aren't necessarily looked back on with fondness, but there had been a lot of, you know, buildup of the credibility of the FBI. How do you feel about the current politicization of the Bureau? Well, it's 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 horrible. I mean, the Bureau is a great organization that I love, and uh, it does amazing and tremendous things, and there are fantastic people that, that work there. It's not a perfect organization, and people make mistakes, and the IG has revealed that. And so, and we knew that at the time, and tried to put in place management practices and procedures to make sure that bad things didn't happen, but it's an organization operated by human beings, and human beings make mistakes, and this is what happens. And so you have to have layer upon layer of oversight mechanisms and accountability mechanisms to make sure that when things happen that shouldn't, that they're caught and that they are identified and understood, examined, and then addressed. And so we were always... Uh, big proponents of making sure that we were held accountable. The FBI has a huge amount of power uh, in American life and has to be held accountable. And so I think that's one of the – I really bristle when folks compare this to the J. Edgar Hoover days. I've studied uh, and forced my students in law school to study every year uh, these abuses from the Church and Pike Committee, especially the FBI's investigation of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and to go through that and think about the mistakes that were made and so the the world that existed then when that happened is very different from the world that exists today with respect to the oversight and accountability mechanisms that are built into the system in a variety of different ways. And so I really, I just completely reject this notion that what the FBI was doing in, in with respect to the Crossfire Hurricane investigation was in any way similar to what... Uh, J. Edgar Hoover did in especially Co- the King Co-intel case. Pro yeah, and any like, of these other types of things. things because, and, 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 and just real quick, and what every and, and the, what we were doing, the Department of Justice was aware of, and we were doing it under the supervision of the Obama Justice Department as well as the Trump Justice Department. So I just want to be clear: I was not. I was talking about the perception of Americans with respect to the FBI. So I wasn't casting aspersions on. No, no, it's okay. I mean, I. <laughs> I've heard it all at this point in time. There's very little you could say to get me really upset. I say, say, you know, there's a great prophylactic to being whipsawed by the media, and that's to actually read. Read. 
<laughs> you know, read things all the way through, read the report. Um, you know, we're going to hyperlink a couple of things um, in this podcast for sure. Um, but, you know, I want to talk to you for just a second because I think it's important to, to have a little history there. Maybe I, um, having grown up in the world that I did, I'm a little bit more sensitized to it. But um, it would be an understatement to say that it's been a methodology for Russian intelligence to interfere with elections for decades. Uh, they were involved in... Um, trying to penetrate the Roosevelt administration and were successful in doing so. People were convicted at the time. They have always tried to meddle in U.S. politics, and they've always treated us like a threatening adversary. Um, uh, I just wonder if you've thought a little bit about how history might tell this story and if you have some information that you'd like to share vis-a-vis that history of what Russia has done over the years and why something that might have involved people in politics and Russia would have been a legitimate concern for anyone working in national intelligence. Something I I say every opportunity I get, and I'm going to take it right now, which is that the FBI's investigation was about Russia, period, full stop. That's what I've been saying. And that is what our focus was on. What were the Russians up to? How were they trying to do it? How could we identify what they were doing? And how could we thwart them? And to the extent that any Americans were involved in that, helping them either knowingly or unknowingly, we needed to investigate that too. If anybody was either Russian or American or whatever, if anybody was trying to interfere with our efforts to investigate that, we needed to deal with that as well. So we needed to make sure that we were conducting an effective investigation that was not thwarted by any way, by, by anybody, I'm sorry. Um, Russia and before it, the Soviet Union, have been threats to the United States, as you say, you know, going back a century, literally. And so, uh, the, and I don't expect that to change anytime soon, I mean, with the current uh, regime in Russia. And so the FBI will be at this for a long, long time, and the threat will change, their tactics will change, and so on. But it is a persistent threat that the FBI has to deal with. The Russian intelligence services are very sophisticated. The Russian government has a big, big interest in trying to uh, interfere with U.S. political the U.S. political system, our and NATO relationships, our NATO to relationships, try to break, all break of our allies, block. right? Because they have a hard time competing with the United States, given their economy, their social structure, their resources, and so on. And so, the way to they can't really rise up in terms of. Uh, being a threat to the United States, but they can try to bring in, in terms of enhancing their own power, but they can create, they can make themselves relatively more powerful by bringing us down and breaking up our relationships and affecting us uh, domestically by causing us to be at each other's throats and so on. And that's an interesting, you talked about sort of their their methodology morphing. I think it's interesting how quick recent history is forgotten, but there was what, maybe 10 years ago, there was a case where a group of Russians were arrested, some of whom had tried to get involved with Hillary Clinton. Um, and they were eventually, some of them spirited out of the country. We won't talk about what happened. Ghost, in the, ghost stories, yes. Ghost the, stories. Yes, yes. Um, and somehow that was forgotten. That effort was entirely forgotten in this in this um, low level of discourse and, and sort of uh, name-calling and shouting. Uh, but um, I, I worked on that for a long time, and... Um, quite aware that uh, the Russian intelligence services are quite sophisticated. Uh, they're a big threat, but they are not perfect either. And uh, there are ways to, to deal with them and to thwart them. 
a good thought. And let me just remind everybody, Maria Butina was not the first redhead. I don't remember <laughs> what the first redhead's name was. What's up with the red hair dye? Can you help me out here, Jim? What's, uh, what's that all about? Yeah, I don't know. Um, um, it's, you know, the old Soviet flag, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. But anyway, we're going to hyperlink a couple of articles from history just so that it's pretty clear to our listeners who don't already know, look, this is the game they play. Um, it, it, today it was Trump. It might be somebody else tomorrow. You better be ready, and you better question everything you see on the Internet. And if you're not questioning it, I'm sorry. Uh, you get the country you've got. Um, but let's go back for just a second. Um, tell us how this uh, this crossfire hurricane thing ever came to be, and why in the heck was it named Crossfire Hurricane? Did you have anything to do with that naming? I had nothing to do with that naming. Supposedly, supposedly there is a computer, computer program that generates these names, but I've never actually had that substantiated, so I don't know. Uh, it it's is. a pretty sexist song. I'm just going to put it out there. Nobody here is a bearded, toothless hag. It's ugly stuff. Okay, but anyway, okay. Okay. I haven't studied it in that regard, but anyway, that's, I did not <laughs> name it, so don't blame me. Um, but it started... Um, as the Inspector General report makes clear, it was started uh, for a lawful reason with lawful and proper predication under the Attorney General guidelines by the FBI based upon the information that we had received from a friendly foreign uh, government that people speculate as to what that is, but the government's never confirmed the identity of that government. Um, and so it came in that uh, there was information that had been related to the foreign government by George Papadopoulos uh, with respect to Russian efforts to influence the U.S. presidential campaign and asserting that they had uh, emails that were negative with respect to Hillary Clinton. And that information came out, that information was given to us after uh, there were public disclosures of emails from uh, a variety of democratic systems, electronic systems, um, that started to become public in July of 2016. And then later that month, this information from the friendly foreign government came to us, and it was like, oh, my goodness, now so that now we clearly understand what the Russians are trying to do. We need to investigate this. And so as we have said, and I, as I have said, it would have been a derelict, dereliction of duty for us not to have investigated at that point in time, again, remembering that our focus is on what the Russians were doing. The focus was on Russia, not trying to collect political intelligence about the Trump campaign or any other campaign or to interfere in any way with the election, to thwart the election of President Trump or to engage in a coup or treason or sedition or any of those things that have been thrown around. Wow. And what was it like to watch this whole thing be seized upon as a witch hunt? It was distressing because we knew it was not a witch hunt. As I said, it was lawfully authorized and predicated under the applicable uh, guidelines and, and statutes and so on. And so um, it just was it was inaccurate. Uh, we knew that. But at the same time, look, I mean, we sort of knew that we were screwed from the outset because we knew this would be a controversial investigation. So I certainly did. And having worked on things in the past that uh, you, I also knew that, that we were kind of screwed <laughs> with respect to that. And, to, I mean, to me, though, this is part of working in the field of national security, especially as a national security lawyer. My view is that if you actually want to be effective, you have to presume that your career is probably uh, over in the sense that you work on things that are so 
significant with respect to the American people, both to their safety and to their uh, civil liberties. And if you have to, if you get in a position where you have to make lots and lots of decisions, it's very hard to make all of those decisions perfectly and accurately with complete, you know, foresight into the, what the future will be like. You can't do that. And so if you become, if you become seized of that, you will be, I think you'll become uh, so afraid to make a move, to make a decision, that that also will be disastrous. Uh, sure, and so you need you're to, a risk. Yeah, exactly. You need, you need to make decisions as well as you possibly can, given all the constraints that are there, especially the you never have enough time, you never have enough information, but you've got to make decisions. And if you can't handle that, then you should, you should not be in that field. Um, I mean, that's basically it. You, ha- you have to sort of accept that... Uh, your career is likely to be ruined at some point for something that you can't really anticipate ahead of time. And if you can't handle that, you shouldn't really accept a job where you have to make those kinds of decisions. So that's what happened to you uh, leading to our (laughs) next question, unfortunately. Um, So you watched this get referred to the inspector general. And how did you feel when it went over and how do you feel now after the report has come out? Well, the clearing I- you. Let me add, clearing, clearing you entirely you. of any wrongdoing whatsoever. Well, the IG. You know, I've worked with the IG for many, many years, very closely, because, and I've been investigated numerous times by the IG, by the 9/11 Commission, by the WMD Commission, by many criminal investigations because if you work in this area you're going to be exposed to things that are sensitive that sometimes leak and then there's a criminal investigation so you have to deal with that and uh, that's just like the way it is and if you're so, going to run with the big dogs and you know do the hard stuff this happens right? this, this is that just goes with the territory so same thing if you if you are nervous about that you really shouldn't work in this area because uh uh, it's going to happen. And so I, you know, welcomed the oversight, though, because I always knew that I had been entrusted with a significant amount of responsibility and power in these various jobs that I had. And I had to exercise that in a way that was consistent with the constitutional laws of the United States, as well as American values. And I was always aware that I was working for the American people for the taxpayers, and I was constantly thinking about what they would think about what I was doing behind closed doors, and I wanted to make sure that when all this stuff comes out, because eventually it does, that it would be defensible. I thought a lot about what my kids would think if they found out about what I had been doing, and I kept that in in the forefront of my mind, that I wanted them to be proud of me if and when this stuff came out, because, again, it always always does. So... um, so the the facts so the IG reviewing this never really concerned me. I knew that that would happen and I welcomed it. it it's not pleasant to go through an IG investigation, don't get me wrong. Um, they're very very thorough uh, and they're and they you know they call it like they see it. And so uh, but the you know the harder part of all this really was not the IG investigation. It was what happened to all the people that were involved in it. The firing of Jim Comey the upheaval that existed within the FBI, all the other different people who, for a variety of reasons, were removed from their positions and so on. Um, And then eventually what happened to me with respect to uh, leaving the position of general counsel and so on, being tweeted at by the president, all these things. Wow. Well, considering the upheaval that you're just describing, can you, um, how do you feel about, you know, the way that we're going to exit this, right? As we are recording, 
the president is being impeached. Um, a number of his um, uh, associates have been indicted and convicted. Um, the FBI has been assailed um, on, you know, from both sides of the aisle, frankly. Um, where are we, how are we going to get out of this wilderness? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't have a simple answer to that. I think for me, it started with, you know, the in a strange way, the president tweeting about me and the negative impact that, that it had on my career, the leaks that went on, the stories on Fox News and so on. Uh, it had a negative impact on my career. But that once that happened, then it gave me a certain amount of clarity because okay, well, the bad stuff's happened. I'm still here. Um, you know, it's not like I was, it's not like I, it's not like I turned lemon, uh, lemon juice into lemonade, but I realized that I could drink the lemon juice straight. And still, wow. and still, and, and still wow, that is hardcore. I think that should be survive. a new saying. <laughs> okay, there you uh, go. So there's a word, uh, as we're wrapping up, there's a word that's going through my mind this whole time we've been recording, and it's sang-froid. That's one of my dad's favorite words, and it just means cool, cold blood, literally. Mm, okay. Like cool literally, under pressure. Yeah. Um, and so... Jim, it's really been a pleasure to listen to you talk about how you've weathered some very significant storms and you've steered the, you know, the FBI through some amazing historical events. It's really been a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. If I could bring in another musical reference, the, 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 the immortal words of Chumbawamba. Um, <laughs> I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down, right? I, I mean, I thought it was going to be Gloria Gaynor. <laughs> I will survive. Oh. Uh, this, I will say, Jim, this is the first time that Chumba Woman has been quoted on the podcast, and I hope it will not be the last. Okay. <laughs> Chumbawamba. Wow. Are they even still together? I don't think so. But anyway, so, you know, you've outlasted Chumbawamba, you know, and, uh, and you'll still be standing when we have uh, a second term over for President Trump, if that's the way it goes. But it's uh, it's really been great to have you on, and uh, we're glad you came in, and uh, we wish you a uh, brilliant further career. It sounds like you're already um, well underway. We hope you come back and talk to us because there are going to be developments in this area. This stuff is not going away. We're going to have this conversation again in a year, and it's going to be very interesting. Um, let me add today for our listeners a very important news note, and I think it's interesting to follow on this. We've discussed foreign influence. Um, as we're recording this today, which is Thursday, um, January 23rd, news broke today that the cell phone of Jeff Bezos uh, had been hacked, and it would appear that the UN has concluded, as well as Gavin De Becker and his forensic team, that that hack was um, by the Saudis. That information acquired from Jeff Bezos's telephone was then ultimately passed on to associates of President Trump. Um, and there's no indication that this was done at the behest of the president. There's no information to that effect. But just in terms of how things happen with foreign influence, it's not just the Russians. It's everybody who wants a piece of us, and they all do. So um, we'll hyperlink that story uh, from the Washington Post today. And there is a, also a story in the Financial Times, if you have access to that, that's a little more thorough, and the UN report um, at the end of our notes and after we link the IG's report that clears Mr. Baker. So, so as Elisa was saying, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. 
and in the notes of this podcast. We'll be back next week with more content for you. And remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Drop us a note at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org or on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Remember to follow us on Twitter as well at ABA NatSec and on Facebook. We look forward to hearing from you. Remember, it's all right now, and in fact, it's a gas. And just in case you think we'd let you off the hook without a legal disclaimer, the attorneys hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. See you next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. Thank you.